Welcome, viewers, to the sixth episode of the Think Bad, Do Good podcast. Today, we're so lucky to have Julia Vu on the line with us. Hey, Julia. Hey, Jonathan. Julia is in Plymouth, um, not Plymouth, Massachusetts. Have you been to Plymouth? The original Plymouth. The original <laughs> Plymouth, Jonathan. <laughs> have, you, have you been to the new Plymouth? Uh, no, well, because someone just told me it's a rock. I was like, why? Why would I just go and see a rock? Well, there's also Plymouth Plantation. Did you, you, so you didn't oh, go is to, there? Yeah, see, this no. is like, in your Kennedy School reunion, you can go to the Plymouth Plantation. Had you, you've never heard of Plymouth Plantation? Because you weren't 12 when no. you were there. No, I haven't. I haven't heard of Plymouth Plantation. But I haven't even been to, like, what is it? Like, uh, the Cape? Or, like, yeah. uh, the other... The other the nicer side of, <laughs> yeah. of that area. Yeah. My geography of America is terrible. Maybe it's nowhere near. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I just hope that nobody from Plymouth, Massachusetts heard you say that, to, to say that it's nicer where you are. But they probably know that. Deep in. So she's in Plymouth, England, which is in Sussex. Is that right? No. Devon. Devon. Oh, now I feel better about my geography. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I um yes you should so Plymouth Plantation for the record and this is not what this podcast is about um Plymouth, Plymouth Plantation is this historical recreation it's like the nights those um Renaissance fairs and it's an, an historical recreation of, of Plymouth so you can go and like eat meal and like like see how they interacted with the Native Americans it's quite cool yeah oh, so you missed out. Is it kind of like that scene that they reenact in Boston, like every so often, like this kind of war scene of like the Brits attacking and. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And then like all the families sleep on, on one big cot, one big bed or whatever it is. Um, anyway, this tangential, completely tangential. So th- um, thank you for joining us today, Julia. Um, Julia is, as the, you'll see in the, on the podcast page here and the links below, Julia's a non-resident fellow at the Belfer Center. Um, where she recently, you were the director for the the China project. What's the name of the previous thing you did there? Uh, China cyber, China cyber policy initiative, right? <laughs> Which for viewers, obviously is like something China cyber is something to, to be concerned about. Um, and she has just led the production and publication of Belfer's national cyber report. So or the cyber power index, which is a study in countries comparative cyber power across criteria. So she's going to talk to us about that. Um, but before we dive in, so you're, you're at the Kennedy School uh, or, and you, you studied at Harvard. Um, what? So you have this background in trade too. You had a career with the British Foreign Service, um, including a trade posting in Beijing right after the end of Brexit. Tell us about that. What was that like? Yeah, so um, I was in the, uh, I was moved to the trade policy team just after the EU referendum. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was in a little bit of like two minds. So firstly, I was sad because I didn't want the UK to leave the European Union. And actually, I remember like I was in Beijing when the vote happened and we're all in a bit of shock. So then we decided to do what we tend to do when we're sad during the work hours, which is to go and eat some dumplings. So we're at this, like, my favorite dumpling restaurant. It's really good. Din Tai Fung, you should go. Oh, I think you have some in America. Um, and <laughs> we're eating these dumplings. And then my Chinese colleague just kind of turned around to me and she's just like, 
what do you think of democracy now? <laughs> and then I, was, <laughs> then I was just like, oh, that's too soon. And just like continued shoving dumplings in my face. Um, but then, so I was moved to the trade policy team. Um, and that's like a function that the UK hasn't had for four decades. And so like, I was a little bit curious, um, but I was in, like our team was six people. I was surrounded by like amazingly talented diplomats. And we had this like shared mission of wanting to make sure that the UK isn't like totally screwed. But then we also wanted to, but then we also had the shared like WTF is trade policy. So <laughs> we had to like figure that out. And it was also <laughs> a very interesting time um, because, uh, you know, the cybersecurity law of China was just being drafted um, and implemented a month later. The AI development plan came out, you know, all this like kind of, discussion around what is the social credit system. Mm -hmm. um, so I was uh, leading the, the uh, trade angle on cyber issues. Mm -hmm. Wow, that sounds totally fascinating and historical. Um, so the, obviously, for those of us on watching who aren't experts on trade policy, the reason why Britain hadn't had a, a trade policy in China for so long is because it, all of the trade policy was done through the EU. Is that right? Or is it through the customs union originally founded? Uh, well, tra no, trade is an EU competency. So like right. we hadn't had to do it um, in-house. So that was sort of outsourced to the EU for the last 40 years. Basically, yeah. You can think like, yeah, yeah. Huh. That's fascinating. Um, so what was it like? But what was it like covering these issues in China at the time? Like what were some of your top takeaways from your experience in China doing that work? Yeah. Well, so one is that just generally from a, um, you know, a, another country con considering their commercial interests, there are a lot of challenges of the China market, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot of market access barriers. Um, it's a very like unlevel playing field for foreign competitors or foreign businesses. Um, and then, you know, I was trying to get my head around what that means. Mm -hmm. And then when the cybersecurity uh, law came out and related things, like I have a social science background. Like I at the time, I'd been like a foreign policy nerd in China for like seven years. Mm -hmm. And then you introduce these um, laws that I'll have uh, like, you know, technical implications. Um, and uh, I could feel like it was important. <laughs> But I couldn't quite understand, you know, what are the policy implications, like like critical infrastructure, like what does data localization, what could it mean for like between countries and like competitive advantage or like what what's cryptography? Um, so it was like there was a lot of things coming to a head um, and it was I found it really interesting, but also um, I was curious to really get my teeth sunk into uh, the more, you know, specifically, specifically what the cyber um, policy side of things meant for UK interests. Yeah, oh, that's so cool. And that's, so that's why you decided to go to Kennedy School. Is that what your goal was? Uh, yeah, yeah, because I was like, okay, so <laughs> um, I feel like this issue is here to stay. I don't know like a whole lot about it, but I'm super interested. So I wanted to find um, the place in the world where other people had thought about it more. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like found the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy um, mm -hmm. and they focus in like, they focus on 
the intersection of science and international affairs. So they've got a really strong track record on like nuclear policy. And, you know, um, Ash Carter is the head of the center. He's like a mm -hmm. former DOD secretary of state and, and has a PhD Defense. in physics. Like, the, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. <laughs> it's not um, you. Clarifying for the world, you knew that. Of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I was just kind of, I kind of like, hung around there a lot when I got in. It's amazing. I mean, I, um, I was there, I worked with Graham Allison as his course assistant in 2006. Um, wow. Yeah. Thanks, Julia. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. He, he is like, he's something of a kingmaker. So, you know. <laughs> yes. Mind, well, he know. tried with me and all, all I've done is become a vassal coming out of it. <laughs> it was great. I mean, working for Graham Allison, um, was excellent training for working for uh, senior officials in government because he kind of, and I, he might appreciate this if he sees this, but he, he sort of acted like a senior official in government when he was running Belfer. Um, he once asked me before a class, um, we did this whole thing on, we were doing policy memos. We wrote, we wrote his policy memos for his course on foreign policy making. And there was some question about, um, and it was, an, it was a case on the environment. And right before class, he says to me, he's like, if we drop a certain amount of barrels per day, like what's that going to do to the price of oil in, in Saudi Arabia? Let me know by class. And class started in like six minutes. And I majored in religion. I was like, come on, man. How am I going to figure this out? I can't figure this out at all. Um, but it does have this sort of tradition of attracting some, the brightest minds and, and national security policy from across the spectrum. Um, yeah. So then so you went there and then you got, this, you got a job working on China cyber coming out of it. Is that what happened? Yeah, basically. Because um, when I just rocked up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at the time, um, Michael Solmeyer was the cyber director. Yep. Uh, and Harvard had just got this grant um, to uh, start a track to dialogue, uh, which is a policy discussion mm -hmm. um, between the Belfer Center and a Chinese mm -hmm. think tank. And so they just needed someone on the Belfer side to head it up. So I was heading up this track to between like former members of the PLA, um, Ash and Eric um, for Belfer. That's awesome. That's such a good and important thing to do. Um, well, to the degree that you can offer lessons about that experience and your your experience in the government throughout this conversation, I think will be good for us. Um, so, um, okay, so you've written this you've written this study. Uh, actually, you and you seem to have attracted a remarkable amount of talent from across the British government, past and present, to help you with the study. Um, so tell us about it. What were you trying to achieve and what was its objectives? And for those who are watching, again, the link is right below. You can you can click on it. We'll reference it here in a minute. Sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny, really, because obviously, as we've mentioned, like I wasn't hired to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and this came up because um, I was uh, I think I'd just come out of an event and I was with one of the other team members, Erfan Hamani, and um, someone I think in the talk had said, oh, you know, the super, cyber superpowers are the US, the UK, Russia, Israel, China. And then I was just like, I think we we're just talking and I was like, why? You know, what is what is it that makes them like super <laughs> um, tips them over the threshold? And like, like who's number six? Like I never hear about who comes after those five powers. Um, so we were just, you know, kind of, uh, I think I was a student at the time as well as being the research director. And we we're like, oh, we should write something. 
oh no 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 I just finished I saw the research director um he was a fellow and um I was like oh this sounds like a good report um we should write something together and I'm pretty sure like at some point I was like you know this is like great this will be like our first product it'll take us one month right <laughs> <laughs> then, so this is like a year ago like fast forward add like four other like brains thousands of strategy documents um like excel spreadsheets uh like and a lot of like heated discussions um here we are excellent work so i'm really bad at estimating time that's excellent you can ask eric and ash carter sometime about how long i took to write the dod cyber strategy it was almost as long what? Yes. You wrote it. That's oh. amazing. No, it wasn't. Don't, don't. <laughs> it, was, it took too long. There were a lot of people involved, but yes. So, but um, but I um, I, that took longer than anticipated. Uh, the coordination process. But I think your report is more long-lasting and important. So, so um, oh God, I was, I'm yeah. totally going to interview you for the next iteration. I'll be like, tell us. Yes, tell us. Do tell us. <laughs> um. But that's, wow, that's great. So it is a comprehensive report. And it obviously you've applied this element of social science rigor that I think um, is the sort of hallmark of the Belfort tradition. But um, I want to get into the study. And what, what were you, what, what did you, what, what do you think you really wanted to achieve? Was it sort of an assessment of, of like, a, like a, a database assessment of who they are so you can make a clear statement? Is that the main thing? Or was there, let, let me, let me, let me ask, let me ask this question a different way. Um, Actually, you know what? Let me just dive into this one question here. Okay, you have a you have a point in the report. It says um, the most comp- comprehensive cyber power is the country that has one the intent to pursue multiple national objectives using cyber means, and two the capabilities to achieve those objectives. That's a great statement. So it's the most comprehensive cyber power is the country that has one the intent to pursue multiple national objectives u- using cyber means, and two the capabilities to achieve those objectives. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that means? How did you come to that formulation? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, so I mean, the comprehensive cyberpower is our term for like, you know, cyber superpower. And so this was, as it stemmed from that random conversation after the event, like this was us trying to figure out exactly what does it take to be like the most influential, um, state actor in cyberspace. Um, and so I guess perhaps the most interesting part of our framework is that we consider the different ways that over the years states have um, conducted activities uh, using cyber means to achieve their national objectives. And so we identified like buckets of um, activities. And, you know, it's not just offensive that seems to be at the top of the mind of most people um, and also like national defense. There's also domestic surveillance. Um, censorship, intelligence gathering, you know, just making money, um, and also uh, to shape like global norms. Uh, so like the UN and stuff, and also technical standards. Um, so the, the first thing about this report is that we have said that states use cyber power to do these seven things, which is like new in itself, like no one had um, has stated that as such mm-hmm. in, in an academic um, context. Um, and so for us, like the most comprehensive cyber power is the one that can do and intends to do all of these things. So it wants to do them and it has the capability to do them. So I was trying to think of like how I could explain this mm-hmm. most interestingly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me try it out on you. And if it doesn't work, you can cut it, obviously. <laughs> so <one> of- <laughs> imagine you're a chef. 
Uh-huh. Right? Okay. <laughs> so if you're a chef and you've got like an empty kitchen, you're not going to be cooking anything. Mm-hmm. But if you're a chef and you've got some ingredients, mm-hmm. um, then you can make some things. And if I source those ingredients, they're going to kind of guess what you can make. But there comes a point, I think, where you don't know what the hell is going to come out of the kitchen until you know what who, like the chef. <laughs> so this is our inventory <laughs> of, um, you know, like what is uh, what does the state want to do with cyberpower yes. and what can it do? Oh, that's so important. That's exactly right. I love that. When I first started working on cyber, it was when it was after the Shamoon incident in 2012. Actually, it was right before. It was before Shamoon. It was after this other thing that happened that's been reported called Olympic Games. Um, Just people have written about. (laughs) Um, So after that, I thought, okay, this this thing has just happened. Um, Chances are the Iranians are going to go after Persian Gulf assets. That's just like the first thing that came, came to my mind. And so I wrote a strategy paper about it. It's like, how do we help the Persian Gulf shore up its cyber defenses? And it gets to your point right there. Like it was an easy extrapolation. It was the only time I've ever prognosticated an international event because a year later, obviously they attack with Shamoon and we hadn't done enough to help the Persian Gulf at that point. But it gets to your point because if you start with intent and the nature of the chef, then you can sort of imagine on the basis of past behavior, what this hot power might do from a cyber standpoint. Is that about right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's basically that's basically what it is. And but the thing is, like a lot of indices, like military indices and other kind of indices in the past, don't really consider what is the state's like intent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So exactly. But that's so cool that you prognosticated it. It was the one time in my life I've ever seen something coming. Um, but now I've told the world about it. So guys, send me money. Um, so let's <laughs> let's bring up your your top ten list. So who's can mm-hmm. you? Just read out the top 10 for those listening by audio. Sure, sure. So top 10 uh, from 1 to 10 is uh, US, number one. Um, <laughs> I shared this to, sorry, <laughs> tangent. shared this to my American family and like, the response was just USA, USA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so one to 10. Number one is the US. Mm-hmm. Number two is China. Number three is the UK. Four, Russia. Five, Netherlands. Six, France. Seven, Germany. Eight, Canada. Nine, Japan. Ten, Australia. This is a, there's some surprises in this list, which I want to get into. Um, but that's a great list. Incredibly helpful. Can you, um, can you tell us how are the US and China similar and how are they different? Sure. So, um, Based on like our ranking, so there are like seven objectives, as I mentioned earlier, um, and uh, the U.S. tops uh, four of these seven categories, and those are intelligence gathering, offense, norms, and information control. Um, the, and then the China tops uh, surveillance, commerce, and defense. Uh, but this is, and this is the calculation where we're looking at, do they want to do it? Can they do it? Right. But if we uh, and then we also offer some more data points in the report where we're like, okay, so what do they actually just want to do? And on intent, actually, China ranks higher um, is number one. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess in terms of like the current great power, like discussion and stuff and the fact that the technology and this kind of competition is that is the center of um, the US China like tensions it seems to be i think one of the things that people can take away from this report is that there's actually still a significant gap um if we look at the our assessment of capabilities um across all of the objectives um even though 
China comes second overall, there it's still um, a substantive gap. So, what was the last point you made? It's uh, even though mm-hmm. China comes second in mm-hmm. this list of thirty. Yeah. Uh, there's still quite a bit of a gap between um, the US and China. Yeah, that's. There's a question I was going to ask later, but I want to jump ahead. Um, do you did you did you see any like in your research? Did you find any sort of core investment areas that were driving the top tier players to to elevate? Like, did did there have to be a certain amount of education in information technology, or did there were there ever like tech tech companies? clustered in a certain business or region like here in Silicon Valley? Um, or were there personnel trends that you noticed from an investment standpoint over time from a government? Or maybe maybe you didn't look at those drivers as you did the assessment. I'm just curious if it came up at all. Yeah, no, there were definite... Um, well, so let me just have a look. Um, so you obviously, like the... Not obviously, but you did rank highly if you had a lot of, um, you know large um, international technology companies. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we noticed a trend in uh, strategies across the board where um, like governments were developing specific like, you know, cyber defense and offensive uh, teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like specific uh, resources being um, put aside to grow those capabilities in the military and across government. Um, another thing I think is that some people might uh, like forget is that um our our index considers um how you know cyber capabilities can also be a weakness so a smaller attack surface mm-hmm. um like a large attack surface on our ranking actually counts against you huh. right because it's harder to defend um and so for example i think that's probably one of the reasons why singapore ranks very highly on um uh, defense and also uh, the netherlands that's why Singapore ranks highly because it has a smaller attack service. Is that why? Yeah. That's fascinating. So the smaller attack service of Singapore and the Netherlands is what elevate them into the top 10. Well, so Singapore is not in the top 10. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay. I, I think I've gone on a tangent. No, no, no. no you're question. doing great. That's perfect. Sorry. <laughs> Singapore's not. Where is Singapore? What number is it? You're... Um. So overall, Singapore, let me just pull up the longer list. You didn't go on a tangent. I, I, I put in an alternative fact and move them onto the list. So Singapore is actually pretty far down the list. Oh. Um, but on defense specifically, I think it's in the... It's We're getting a really good shot of Julia's ear at the moment. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot that there is a camera there. <laughs> there is. We're definitely not cutting this. We're not cutting this. It's too good. Um, I can't really, sorry, this is really small. Um, but I remember like when we were going through the, um, assessments and stuff, um, uh, that, that was something like how much connectivity, like they were both good and bad bad points in our ranking. Well, what's interesting is the U S comparatively U S and Japan and the UK, if I was guessing last time I looked at these statistics was a little bit ago, would be the three of the most popular, like user populace on the list, France too. So the U.S. must have invested really significantly in other areas to counteract the sheer size of its attack surface. Um, yeah, I mean the U.S. trumps um, like, like it's super strong in, a, in in a lot of areas that kind of lifts the overall um, average. Because you know when we're talking about the ten, we're talking about like across all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it's a bit of balancing out. 
And so what has the Netherlands done? This is like just mind boggling to me. It's like cyber weed. Is that what makes it to me? It's no longer <laughs> unique. It used to be that like in Amsterdam, that's why they went there to get stoned. But now, oh, now I get it. God, I'm so slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so, this is fascinating. I mean, windmills, that's not going to do it. Sorry for all of our <laughs> colleagues watching this. I don't mean to be a jerk. Um, so small tax reference, but what have they done to differentiate themselves to get up? What number are they? Six? Is that right? I'm gonna, you're gonna no, never mind. They're on the list. They're, they're on the list. <laughs> what have they done to get there? Well, so, yeah, I mean, like, Netherlands um, is probably is def one of those powers that we would classify as, like, a high capability, but perhaps slightly lower intent. Mm -hmm. um, but they're still in the top 10, right? So, um, you know, that capability, uh, they have a strong capability in other areas that are not traditionally associated with cyber power. So the, the reason why most people be like, oh, my God, the Netherlands is there is because most people associate cyber power with offensive capabilities. And it's not like you hear every day that the, you know, like Dutch are attacking everyone. Um, but, you know, it's actually very openly signaling um, that it plans to develop cyber capabilities. Like it has a very specific cyber strategy. Like it's clear who owns it, what it seeks to do. It's up to date. It has resources delegated to it. And the thing is to score highly, you need to not only, as I said, like have the intent, but there also needs to be like some demonstration that you've like can do it or have done it. Um, so that's why it's up there. And actually, they're really establishing themselves as like a kind of thought leader, um, particularly in Europe, mm -hmm. on like cyber norms. Um, we're actually presenting this paper at their cyber conference later this year. Cool. So, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's really neat. Um, <laughs> so uh, the, when I look at this ranking, I immediately think about competition, uh, particularly for potential adversaries or adversaries, right? And given your background on, on China, now, I have so many questions about each country on here, but I think for for the viewer and given your deep expertise on China, how would you how do you see the U.S. and China managing their long term cyber relationship? Um, and maybe maybe part of that answer is just about the relationship overall. But I'm curious if you could offer thoughts. Yeah, well. So this is basically drawn from the the track two dialogue um, work that I was doing um, my so one of the reasons why we had funding to do it anyway was because both governments weren't really talking to each other. So they needed like an avenue of communication. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that people tend to do in these forums is a very common tool in diplomacy is try to get a better understanding of the other person's strategy. Like what are the lines of um, communication and who makes the decisions on each side? And, you know, in the event of like a, a crisis, the, the point is to avoid any kind of unnecessary escalation in crisis. Um, and there are a number of these different kind of dialogues that go a lot that happen. Um, but I think what, one of the most unfortunate things is that currently U.S. and China competition um, like communication is so bad. So, for example, um, earlier this week, you probably didn't even come across your radar, but like the EU and China had their summit, like, you know, President Xi Jinping dialed in to a call with like Angela Merkel and the other and like Ursula von der Leyen, Charles Michel of the European Union to talk about, you know, for God knows how long that Zoom call was to talk about like trade and investment, climate change, like but everything that matters to the EU and China that happened between them. Whereas in and that was the second time they did it this year. Right. So in contrast, every single like high level US-China dialogue over the past few years has just dropped off the diplomatic calendar. Yeah. 
Um, and like the emergency talks, like Pompeo met with Yang Jiechi in June in Hawaii, but that doesn't count because emergency talks have a very narrow set of talking points. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, as you know, from working in government, like these kind of like big pieces get the whole machinery of government together. Like they, they get to see all of their strategy, uh, like interests lined up. They can figure out what are the key, yeah. um, you know, what can they afford to negotiate with developer strategy? And, you know, that that's just not happening on this side, at least it seems. Um, and so uh, I think that if uh, channels of communication aren't reestablished, then, you know, people have already said that uh, tough on China is not a strategy. Like you need to have um, these kind of other issues in order to find areas to collaborate. Mm-hmm. So. So tell, tell us a little bit, if you can, about the degree of track two communication between former government officials or um, senior senior folks in business, and not just from the Harvard standpoint, but if you have a competitive understanding of other track two programs, how's, how are things going? So um, there are a number of other um, track two dialogues between the US and China that focus on cyber and like related issues, like I don't know, digital go- governance or something. Yeah. But, um, and they all, so one of the interesting things is they all clock into different parts of the system, right? So on the Chinese side, they'll be, a, they'll be partnered with a different think tank that clocks into maybe a different ministry or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that's really useful because, you know, the Chinese government is not like many other governments is not totally linked up. So you need to get a, like a better understanding of like what is driving each ministry, who's doing what. Um, and then you, and the point is like, ideally that you kind of piece all of these pieces together yeah. and get a better understanding of China. Um, and, um, you know, there is like a handful, I don't know, maybe like 10 US-China dialogues. And just before I kind of wrapped up this position at the Belfast Center, it was like the first time that we all got on a conference call together to like exchange, you know, insights. Oh, good. Um, yeah, I mean, better late than never. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, yes, and, and trying that's, to be that's positive. Really... It's 2020. <laughs> Um, But, you know, know, there is like that kind of expertise and like those kind of um, slightly more informal relationships. Yeah. Um, But the truth is, like, uh, even though they have existed over the years, my read is that actually they have there's less activity. It's much harder for senior officials on both sides to travel to, you know, but even before COVID, like, we, they would get hauled up at immigration if they had links to the PLA and you kind of want to be able to speak to these people, but you know, both sides, people are yeah. finding it hard to travel um, to communicate and funding for track two dialogues mm. is also being cut. Really? Um, yeah. That's pre COVID. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I think that's a real, Shame. I mean, there is a criticism of track two dialogues that they can just be like talking shops and stuff. And yeah. um, I mean, that is true. Uh, that is true. It really does depend who's around the table and what is the global context. But if we can get the right people around the table, like this is the time that we need to have these um, channels of communication. Mm-hmm. And it just seems incredibly short-sighted to me that um, uh, that they've kind of cut funding for it. But there's also there's also these uh, like political um, I think there's the risk some people don't want to be seen as uh, engaging with China because there's a huge, um, it's like it's kind of like tainted in a way because you could yeah. very easily be like then put in the soft on China box. Oh, for sure. Um, this, that's so ironic. I mean, um, it reminds me of you know the 50s or 
the the sort of McCarthyism in the United States. It's like it's really easy to to, to for certain domestic leaders to then or domestic actors to pin to pigeonhole you in that way. When I so I haven't told you this, but in 2010, one of the reasons why I got into cybersecurity, I started as a counter extremism expert. I did my major in religion. I studied the Middle East, looked at counter extremism, and when I entered the Obama administration, working for Jim Miller, um, that and I got a top secret clearance. My son's contributing. Um, that's when I learned that China was taking apart, uh, was stealing IP. And at that point in time, with Cyber Command standing up, like we were extremely focused on China. Russia was much less of a concern. Iran wasn't even on the on the table. Uh, North Korea was just something everybody was terrified about, but hadn't like Iran and North Korea in particular hadn't invested. Um, and we had a the first uh, strategic and economic dialogue um, where it had gone on pre- under the previous administration, and we decided to include cyber within it. And just getting cyber on the docket took forever. It took forever to just to get. The Chinese to agree. And they finally agreed. Uh, or maybe they didn't agree. Maybe we were just asking if we could raise it. I can't remember. Like, There's a lot of work on the U.S. side that had to be done initially. And there was a deputy secretary of state who will remain nameless, who at the last minute, I stayed up until three in the morning working the talking points to raise this issue with the Chinese. We, he, at the last minute, he's like, we, sh- we can't talk to them about it. So it was initially the sort of fear of raising it with them that we would offend them because we had to confront them about intellectual property theft. And ultimately, that's what happened with the help of Mandiant. A few years later, the government said, look, we know you're doing all this theft. Um, so that's like, there's been this evolution from a cyber standpoint in the, in the relationship, but there was a real hesitancy to, to talk about it. And now, of course, we've got this decoupling, which I've, now that I've moved to California, I've had to make much more effort to understand because people don't talk about it all the time around me. Um, <laughs> but from a strategic standpoint, it makes me think about World War One. It's like, if you decouple, even like, so, you know, Britain and, and Germany, World War One, they were close allies and they still went to war. Now we've got this major disrupt, disruption with China rising in Asia. Um, is now really the time to sort of sever levels of communication? I don't think so. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah. what do you, what strategically as you look at the relationship, what would be your recommendations going forward for particularly around emerging technology and cyber for the two countries to, to be able to, avoid going to war? <laughs> it's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think there's a lot and it wouldn't just be about like um, setting up these, like, for example, reviving that kind of cyber dialogue. Actually, you know, under the, when Trump first came into office, I think DHS still had its kind of high level cyber crime dialogue with them. Um, one of the Chinese, um, ministries um but like i feel like i feel like i would focus very much on um like the us kind of figuring out uh exactly what emerging technologies like down to the components it thinks is most important for its future security and there's a lot of information gathering as to in terms of decoupling and supply chains like who is currently leading in that area at the moment there's a lot of mapping that needs to be done i think to a very granular level um before we can really think about how to negotiate with china and how to go forward like oh but i mean on on a on a people thing like the kind of restrictions around students and researchers i think is a really bad idea like i mean anecdotally like I, when I was at school, 
at, at Harvard, um, I remember thinking, you know, in a lot of the classes, like the, the bad guy in the story was always China. And I was just thinking, but, and there's a lot of Chinese students, right? And uh, to be honest, like the Chinese students that are in the classrooms are probably the ones that are most out international and outward looking. Mm -hmm. And and if they spend the whole time in America feeling completely alienated, it's like it's like one massive kind of soft power opportunity just kind of gone. I think was also like, did you guys like cancel all the Fulbright scholarships as well? Like, probably, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that kind of, these kind of long-term people links are like just being severed mm -hmm. um and you know there are there are so many things that i would do like i'm a huge nerd on technical standards and stuff and like what's happening there um in terms of like geopolitics like that's kind of thing where i think we should really look into um who's doing what as well as using the development financing corporation to fund more infrastructure projects in developing countries with allies because obviously the us doesn't have all that industry wait can we um, pause on that are you, are, you're not saying in china you're meaning external like in third party countries yes because i think like you know there's an um there's like what 48 percent of the world that isn't connected to the internet yet 48 percent <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's 48 percent of the world con not connected to the Internet. And over the past 20 years, you know, not just through the Belt and Road Initiative, China has ex like focused extensively on, um, you know, being trading partners with these countries and developing, like providing infrastructure of all mm -hmm. kinds. Um, and whereas in contrast, uh, the U.S. has uh, not really um, gone in there to provide infrastructure, you know, from a U.S business perspective it's like high risk um you know whereas you know there's the whole china kind of debt trap thing where they're funding a lot of these contracts as well but that also gives them like a strategic in into these markets mm -hmm. and so a lot of the infrastructure you find in these developing countries are provided by chinese suppliers and for me in the long term i see this as like a strategic advantage that the us has kind of like not really got a look in at the moment but I have to say one thing that is pretty good. Like in a couple of years ago, I think Trump signed into um, an act, the Build Act, which is basically kind of reshaping US's overseas development financing um, mechanisms, which means that now you guys can, you have like 60 billion to fund infrastructure projects in developing markets, yeah. not just for like technology mm -hmm. um, and like help uh, U.S. companies compete yes. in order to win these contracts, yeah. and so that's like that's like another like arm of it. Like the the kind of how can U.S. China uh, like the U.S. like navigate this competition with China on like the cyber front? There are just like so many angles from oh, like, development completely. policy. Yeah, yeah, um, yep. We um a colleague and I, Arun Mohan Sukumar, uh, wrote a, a, a book length study called Asian Cybersecurity Futures a couple of years ago. And the Belt and Road Initiative, it was too, it's too long. No one read it. It's like 100 pages long. If anyone read it, I'll read it. Yeah. Oh, thanks. He'll put you right to sleep. The executive summary yeah. might be re worth reading. It's also a little bit dated at this point. Um, but the Belt and Road Initiative, that, these recommendations were exactly what we were concerned about, that you know, China's doing this massive amount of investment, and um, it's going to affect other states' cybersecurity behaviors and their views on data and their views on privacy. And there has to be some sort of diplomatic push from the U.S. side. Now, on the other mm -hmm. hand, like, so that's what this is sort of like a, a softer power level of influence to ensure that the Belt and Road Initiative doesn't lead us to getting completely cut out of, of whatever China ends up doing. Right? There's a bunch of there's a bunch of pluses and minuses. So, well, 
there's a bunch of benefits with us sort of paying a lot of attention to it. Yeah. However, let me also ask, like, China has done, is doing egregious things. Like, there's no doubt about it. Like, what's going on with the Uyghurs, um, Xi Jinping's consolidation of power over the, the military. There is clearly this sort of, you know, like, to a degree, um, their behavior is, is, is not contributing to, to us staying on the path of peace, right? So we have to sort of balance our investments strategically at the same time for in case things do go sideways with China in a way that we don't want. How do you how do you how do you think about that problem set and Xi Jinping's behavior and, and the regime overall? Yeah. Well, I agree, of course. Um, but I think that in terms of how I feel like we should be dealing with these issues within international structures where possible or creating um, in international structures that function better. Like one, like there are so many problems with the world right now. Um, but I actually quite respect, um, <laughs> I'm surprised the EU way of <laughs> dealing with it, which is, um, you know, tackling these difficult issues like um, the awful treatment of Uyghurs and the national security law in Hong Kong front on, like yeah. at the summit this week. Um, and like, if the U.S., I think particularly on like the, the U.S. can't do it by itself, I think. So there's a lot that the U.S. needs to do with allies. Um, and one of the best forums in which to do with allies is like international like governance, which is, and I've, I feel very sad when I think about, um, you know, the U.S. kind of turning away from engaging internationally on these issues. Um, because when it, I think the, the, the kind of, self-harm it does is um it makes the u.s uh lose legitimacy yeah um by not operating within these structures and that kind of legitimacy and that soft power and like respect as a global leader is actually quite fragile mm -hmm. and i think that over and, and it's something that um in contrast you know china is operating in these international institutions pretty sophisticated very sophisticated you know yeah um and it's and this is like a narrative that like, you know, America and uh, in Europe has driven over the years, like this kind of international governance, uh, like rule of law um, and multilateralism and whatever. It's, it's if the US chooses not to operate in it, it kind of like shoots itself in the foot. Yeah, um, totally. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, the, I, it's, it's 2020. It's easy to sort of look at the world and, and wring our hands and be worried about the future. Like, quite, quite, quite easily. Um, I have, I still, I have faith in all these institutions, right? I have faith in institutional memory. I have faith in like the fact that there are all these good people who are, who are watching out for this and like, who don't want the, these pathways to come forward. So hopefully no matter what happens in November, what you're talking about will change, right? Like it doesn't look like there's a, um, like it's a path towards success. On the other hand, like being hard on China, what are the benefits you, that we've seen from, from President Trump being hard on China. Do you see any benefits there? Well, no, I mean, I don't disagree, actually, like yeah. with you know, the criticisms of China um, and all the things that has done wrong. I just don't think that the method is the best uh, way. I also think that um, it's not a full enough response to a country that there's a whole like range of interests that are kind of just falling to the wayside yeah. um, because we're focusing on like three things. Mm -hmm. 
and I don't think it's sustainable. Right. Uh, yeah. And I and it's probably more damaging. I think to like I, I really do think the soft power thing and the global leadership and like how the rest of the world is viewing the U.S. is a really important thing that needs to be protected. Yep. Um. And a lot of that has been, and it's not just of the way like Trump has treated like you know responded to China so generally <laughs> um Trump unfortunately um but um hopefully like whatever happens in November there'll be like a more sort of comprehensive consideration of like what's going to happen over the next four years because I really do think it's a critical point for um like the the U.S. to kind of come back <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, completely. um yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it's a it's an anxious moment here in this country there's mm-hmm. no doubt about it um, and that's something that we talked about with your colleague Siobhan Gorman and, and Robbie Mook on the disinformation campaign uh, discussion. So for folks interested in that topic, um, we have a, a, a full treatment of it um, with with one of Julia's colleagues. Um, the one thing that I remember at the end of the, there were a couple of things at the end of the Obama administration that powered me forward, one of which was the climate agreement, um, which my cl- college classmate, Brian Deese, helped negotiate we, uh, working with China and India in particular. And gaining agreement between the U.S., China, and India on the Paris Accords to decrease emissions, and really setting a quite an aggressive path after the forest fire, after the fires here in California this week, like that to me trumps almost every other issue. No pun intended. Um, but like to to solve the climate problem makes cybersecurity and so so many of these other issues, which are significant and require management from a deterrence and escalation standpoint but if we could solve the climate problem it's like hello that that would like i'm willing to put a whole bunch of other things on the table to get back to that point yeah no absolutely they're like there are things where if the us and china work together they can do a huge amount of good um but there doesn't seem to be like the political will at the moment to do it yes yeah gosh this is um this is a darker note to end on than we probably should is there something positive we can talk about (laughs) Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Um, thank you for doing this cyber power report, a uh, cyber power index, but not sorry, national cyber index. Is that right? Just, thank, thank you for reading it. I wasn't sure anyone would. Yes. I mean, this is always the view when you publish these deeply thought out academic papers. Um, um, but thank you for your work. Thank you for all you've done for international peace and security in your career. Um, and that you're going to do going forward. It's exciting that you're, uh, you're in the UK. So if you, if you had to pick between Plymouth, Boston, and Beijing right now, <gasps> right now, like on, right let's now. assume a sunny day. It's sunny in all three places. Which one would you pick? I can't say. I, I, I would choose Plymouth. You choose Plymouth. That's probably just a safe call. You don't want your parents to throw you out of the house. I go to Beijing for dinner. I to Beijing for dinner. <laughs> Yes, totally. I've only been there once. I spent. I was supposed to be there for two weeks. Such a beautiful city. Um, it can really be beautiful. Yeah. And yeah, and vibrant. And the people are actually very, very nice. I, you know, when I first went to China, that was when I realized that like the Chinese could eat America's economic lunch in a heartbeat. It was like I've never seen a group of people that are working so hard and seem so driven and motivated. Also, the Japanese whiskey is incredibly affordable. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They've got like, oh, if you go again, I can give you such a good list of like where to go and all like the hidden Japanese bars and like the ones that are just populated with just Japanese customers. And you're like, yes, this is the place. It's legit. 
and they fly in their fish every day from Tokyo. So. Oh my gosh. That's so great. Yeah. Well, hope to go back someday. Um, anything else you want to share before we sign off? No, not really. <laughs> I'm kind of like, um, yeah, I'm just very thoughtful now of all the questions on the US China stuff. Um, thank you so much for having me on the show. Me on the show. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah.